everybody. Welcome to the show. This is the Freeski Files episode two, and I am your host, Nick Steers. Well, if you are new to the show and you missed the first episode with Isaac Freeland, well, welcome. Thanks for joining us, first of all. I'll just reiterate something that we said off the top in the first opener that we did. The point of this show is to have fun conversations with cool people and skiing. Pretty much, period. And I think today's episode delivers that as well. We've got Neil Willem in here. And this guy is a very cool individual. You see, there's a little bit of a Kiwi invasion going on in free skiing right now. Five New Zealanders on the tour, and they're not just on the tour, but they're serious threats to become champions. And Neil was really at the forefront of this movement. He was one of the first Kiwi skiers to qualify for the Freeride World Tour. He did it through the qualifier system. He's a pro skier in his own right. He still continues to film and ski and travel the world. And on top of that, he's the voice of the Freeride World Tour right now. He's a commentator. He follows the tour around and he breaks down the action for us at home. You've seen any clips on Instagram or you've seen any of the highlights from the tour. Chances are you've heard Neil's voice calling the action. He's a great commentator and he's a real fun guy to chat with on the podcast. I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. So without any further introduction than that, let's bring him in. This is Neil Williman. What a way to open things up. That was a mind-bending run from the Frenchman. How could you spin a tree like that in the area? What do you mean he's lost? Look at him go with the transfer! Oh, oh my god, Greg! What the hell was that? I believe we're recording. Neil, are you there? Yep. Hey, Nick. Hey, man. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I think probably what we should do is start with the coronavirus, right? That seems to be the big event in the world right now. As we speak, it's May 4th. And where I am in Quebec, it's still very much in lockdown mode here. It's hard to travel within your region, let alone going from province to province still. And people are still self-quarantined in their homes and schools haven't really started yet. But it seems like we might be slowly getting over the hump and... I've been following you in Innsbruck in Austria, and it seems like you've been out adventuring. Like you guys, what's it like there? Is, are, do you think you guys are over the hump? Yeah, I think so, and I hope so. We were on full lockdown. We're right next to, to Italy. South Tyrol is actually part of Italy, and I'm in North Tyrol in Innsbruck. And uh, yeah, as you probably know, in Italy and also Western Austria, we're on full, full lockdown. We weren't allowed to really go outside at all unless it was to get groceries or medicine or something like that. Uh, so yeah, we are hopefully over the hump now, not that many new cases per day over the last week, and that's why we started adventuring again, which has been amazing to be outside and and ski up mountains and ski down mountains and go biking and climbing and generally enjoy life the way we like to live it. So yeah, hopefully we are over the hump, and uh, fingers crossed that as they start to slowly reopen and people are out together in groups of 10 and even more now, then it's going to go back to the, the new normal, whatever that is. Yeah, dude, I was jealous looking at some of your Instagram images. It looked amazing. And it made me think like, you're for anybody that hasn't figured it out from your accent, you're not from Austria. You're obviously a Kiwi and you're part of this global Kiwi free rider invasion that seems to have taken the world by storm. And you're, you, you've, I'm sure as many free riders from New Zealand have been double dipping on, on winter over the years as the New Zealand winters different uh it's during our summertime and 
I, you know, I think of a Kiwi traveling in Europe, pro skier, the world is his oyster. There's a lot of different places you could go. There's the, the usuals, there's Verbier, there's Chamonix, but you ended up in Innsbruck. How exactly did that happen? Why, why did you choose Innsbruck of all places? Well, it's a bit of a long story, actually, but I'll try and make it as short <laughs> as possible. Uh, yeah, as you're saying, I was doing northern winters and northern hemisphere and southern winters in New Zealand. And uh, at first that was in North America, and then I decided I wanted to go to Chamonix for a season. Went there for my first season 10 years ago, actually, and uh, met a pretty Swedish girl after a week or two. And now I'm married to her, and I'm still living in Europe. Um, so for most of that time, I was going back and forth between New Zealand, probably about the first half of that 10 years. Uh, but actually, for most of the time since 2012, I guess, I've been mostly based in Europe. Uh, and Innsbruck is a place that a film crew that I was working with were filming out of and invited me to come and be part of a movie project. And uh, once I got here and spent some time here, I really realized how amazing it is. Uh, you know, it's not the same as Switzerland or France, but uh, it's different in its own really special way, which I really, really enjoy. And there's a good crew of, uh, of hardcore locals here that keep the vibe alive. So... Yeah, my wife did a, a three-year master's degree here, and we decided we'd like it enough to try and stay. So it's not a bad place to be in winter or summer and here year-round at the moment. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I spent a bunch of time with uh, Tower Krybik over the past winter and the winter before, and he's also based in Innsbruck, and he was telling me a little bit about it. And there seems like, I think I watched maybe a series that you were part of called Epic Innsbruck as well that was showing a bunch of the free riding. Like it is, there is a free ride community there, isn't there? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, there's actually quite a solid freeride community. I guess the differences between most of the places that you know of in Switzerland and France, like Verbier and Chamonix and really famous big ones, is that they're ski resorts. There are small towns right in the mountains that are ski and ski out, uh, whereas Innsbruck is a town of 120,000 people kind of in a big valley with mountains on the side and, uh, you know, 20,000 students or so um, and solid freeride community, but kind of intermingled with this, like, normal student city uh so it's not ski and ski out you kind of need to know where to go and when to go to what places and check the snow report and all that kind of stuff because there's you know 90 resorts on one season's pass which lasts for six months so local knowledge is super key and even though there's a lot of free riders you don't really see them all at the same place at the same time because there's so many places to go so yeah solid free ride community but in a pretty different way to the well-known bigger resorts so yeah, that's but that sounds pretty awesome. How would how fast would it be to get to your close? What would be the closest major ski hill for you guys to get to? Uh, so the closest closest one is Nordketa, and there's like a funicular train thing that goes straight out of town. Like you can literally get on that in the city. Uh, it takes you up to the bottom of gondola, which takes you up halfway up the mountain, and then there's another gondola that goes right to the top. So you can literally be from in town to up the top of the mountain with some pretty sick terrain. Um, I don't know, like half an hour or so, which is pretty amazing. Um, unfortunately, amazing. yeah, it's, it's really incredible. Um, the downside of that one for me is that it's due south facing. So it can be really good when there's fresh snow, uh, but because it's obvious and well-known and easily accessible, uh, so it gets crowded and skied out and the snow quality goes down because of the direct sun. So unless it's like January on a fresh day, then it's not my favorite place to go. Um, and the second closest place to, to Innsbruck, short driveway, uh, probably like 20 minute drive is Axum and uh, that's north facing and has lots of like kind of 20, 30 minute tours from the lift for really, really good access to, to side country that not everyone skis because it's not as obvious and not as easy to find. So that's kind of become my, my adopted home resort here in Innsbruck and um, actually made a, a short movie called Working Folks Freeride about skiing there and 
all the people that had showed me around there and how much I appreciated it when I was working part-time in an office in England and having to commute over here. So if anyone's interested, check that out. That gets me to another question, actually, that I was wondering about you, is that obviously the motherland for you is New Zealand, yet when you were competing on the world tour, and if you would look Neil Willeman up in the Freeride World Tour database right now, there would be a Great Britain flag next to your name. What? How does that work? What is your relationship with England? So my dad's from England, uh, born and raised in England. Um, I born and raised in New Zealand. Uh, Mum's Kiwi as well. Uh, but I came over to England, as I was saying, uh, well, mostly firstly to, to Central Europe in 2012 after doing a couple of seasons before that. And I right. uh, ended up working as an engineer in summer in England. Um, and I have a British passport through my dad. Uh, so, yeah, I was registered in, in England and working in England. You know, that's where I was based for tax and insurance purposes. So uh, as far as Europe is concerned, I am English because I use my British passport, which is unfortunately no longer a European Union passport, but <laughs> was until recently. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's um, that's uh, uh, that explains a lot. Yeah. So, but you are, see, I have the opposite going on because my mom is from New Zealand. She's from a town called Amaru, and uh, she is born and raised there, and moved to Canada. And I was born and raised in Canada, and I've only been to New Zealand a couple of times, and I haven't been back since I was a uh, a small child, probably seven years old. So. Um, I could probably get a Kiwi passport if I wanted to, but uh, I, I definitely identify as being Canadian, but um, I, uh, I have to get back there one day in the near future for sure. What is, do you think, you know, you're, here you are established in Europe, and, and obviously it sounds amazing in Austria and Innsbruck. Is the long-term plan a stay put, or do you think one day you're going to get back to, do you think you'll double dip on winters again, or do you think you'll go back to New Zealand eventually, or you're, you're still figuring things out? That's a really good question, Nick. As you're saying, as you started off the call with Corona, it's kind of put a lot of things in a new light. And uh, yeah. actually, interesting enough, um, I don't know if you've heard of Queenstown, probably have. It's probably one of the biggest sure. tourist yeah. centers in New Zealand. And uh, so tourism obviously taking a huge nosedive there at the moment and gone from being one of the most wealthy, booming, expanding, uh, second biggest airport in New Zealand, even though it's only a town of 15,000 people to suddenly there's literally no flights there anymore. And it's not because, not just because there's not as many flights in general, it's just they don't fly there because tourism was the only reason that they were pretty much. Uh, and so, you know, that could be a good place to be at the moment. You know, if you want to go check out an amazing place without the tourists, you know, yeah, sounds a little no bit self-centered to, to go over there and, and hang out for winter when there's a lot of worse things going on at the moment and people having a lot tougher times than the fact that our season was cut short and I'd like to go and do some more skiing and, in the country that what, I'm from. <laughs> was that in the pipeline for you? Were, were you and your wife heading, planning on heading back there this summer? Uh, we've always toyed with the idea uh, a little bit more now that we have, you know, I'd say missed out on the rest of winter. Like I said, it sounds super self-centered to say, oh, poor us, we didn't get to ski for the extra <laughs> two or three months. Um, but yeah, I suppose with, with sponsorship, then your sponsors have expectations of, of what you're going to produce media-wise and uh, ski-wise and yeah, if I get the chance to go there and, and be in New Zealand for for winter or more, then, yeah, it sounds like an opportunity that I take at the moment. Right, no doubt. Uh, yeah, I guess we're going to have to wait and see. There's so many unanswered questions. It seems like one of those times where in two years from now, we're all going to be able to look back and go, well, here's what we did right and here's what we did wrong. It was so obvious, you know, but 
as we s sit in the middle of it right now, there's so many questions that we can't answer. And we, you may be suspicious whether or not you're doing the right thing, but you just have to go along with what governments are recommending and, and, and play it by ear, so to speak. 100%. Yeah, totally agree with that because my wife is from Sweden and Sweden's famously doing very differently or taking a very different approach to the rest of the world in terms of how they're dealing with the virus. They haven't really shut down the the country as most other countries have. So everyone's kind of watching them and wondering if they can criticize or if it's going to end up being a better approach because they end up with herd immunity, I think it's called. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, really good, good comparison there to say a couple of years going to look back and, and decide if Sweden was right or wrong and the rest of us were right or wrong. Yeah, exactly. Well, we can, we can jump on another podcast at that time and, and, and reevaluate yeah. it all. <laughs> I want to, I want to keep going on the topic of New Zealand though, because I wanted to get your take on this. You're probably going to have the one of the best takes that I could get out of anybody is I did some number crunching and you may know some of these numbers already, but I'm going to give you France's population. We have 67 million people in France and 8.5 million skiers in France. And I was they obviously have the biggest ski resorts in the world. They have the Alps. They have massive, massive ski resorts all over France. That was a 2018 statistic, by the way, 8.5 million skiers. So that's 13% of the country of France are skiers, and they ski in the biggest mountains of the world. New Zealand, 5 million total population. I couldn't get the stats on, on the number of skiers, but let's say it's 15%. Let's, get, let's give them 15%. That's 750,000 skiers in all of New Zealand. This past season, although Sam Lee didn't ski, there was five Kiwis on the Freeride World Tour between the men and the women, and there were three French. And in fact, after, apart from the USA, Kiwi was, the New Zealand was the most well-represented country on the tour. Neil, sort it out for us. How is this happening? <laughs> well, yeah, you're making me smile for sure. It's making me really proud. New Zealand Freeride, really proud to be a part of it and really proud to have been one of the one of the first guys to get a chance to be on the world tour, although it was a lot easier to qualify back in the day. Um, hey, my take on that is a few things. For a start, that when you say France has however many more skiers it was in New Zealand, at least 10 times, I think, maybe more, uh, they, recreational skiers in Europe are quite different to recreational skiers in New Zealand, in my opinion. Um, in the South Island of New Zealand, we're like, I mean, no disrespect to North Island, but um, I think most of the, the free ride skiers have come out of the South Island um, uh, no, just, just from Rotorua, though, so represent from up there as well. But um, the South Island has club fields and uh, normal resorts with not much peace, not much grooming. And racing isn't really a thing for us. You know, we don't have like a strong race, although we did just have Alice um, do well in the World Cup. So I'm kind of contradicting myself here. What I'm trying to get at is that freeride is our skiing. Freeride is like normal skiing for us. Everybody mm -hmm. skis off piste. It's not like you learn to ski on the piste or like most people don't have race training or anything like that. It's just like you learn to ski to get down the mountain, wherever on the mountain with your family and everyone's skiing around having fun. And the snow is like not as good or plentiful as in Europe and North America in general, although I've had some great days there. So you get these like rat packs of kids growing up, learning to free ride together and not like competing for the best snow because the snow is kind of probably going to be the same most of the places most of the time. You know, it's like kind of spring conditions most of the year. So mm -hmm. you're cruising around in big rack packs with other people who free ride as the only type of skiing 
and like encouraging each other and pushing each other and learning to send and ski in not such good snow. And it's just a recipe for free ride, which is, in my opinion, why Sweden is the same. You know, you've got so many amazing free riders coming out of order, Sweden. And it's mm-hmm. the same there. The snow is not that good. The mountains aren't that big. But people rat pack around encouraging each other growing up free riding. So it's just it's part of the culture. It's part of the soul of the mountains for us. And you don't have to have a racing background or a mobile background or whatever to, to progress into free ride, I don't think. That was kind of the answer I, ex- I expected you to give, but I was wondering about the endless winter, you know, about, about double dipping on winter. Do you think that plays into it as well? Is there an advantage there, do you think? Or that's just a way of prolonging the fun and it doesn't really make that much of a difference in the end? Oh, uh, no, I think it could be. Um, I mean, like that resource is available to, to people from Northern Hemisphere as well. They can go down to New Zealand or South America. Um, yeah, Australia as well, true. I guess, but it's more of a park skiing scene over there. But the yeah. thing is that for us, like um, you usually grow up free riding if you want to be a free rider and then you get to university and if you go to university but you know most of these guys have like most of the guys on the world tour at the moment for example are doing some kind of tertiary qualification in new zealand in the winter and then it's quite easy to kind of take that summer break to go to north america or to europe where it's like you get three months of solid skiing you're not like trying to be a seasonier where you're working you're like saving up however you can and going there for like a couple of months of like solid skiing and that mm-hmm. seems to be a really good way to do it you're not trying to like milk the whole season or like see how little you can work it's just like i'm here to like ski super hard for these few months and when you're Mm -hmm. that excited to do that and you turn up and you've been thinking about it and like watching ski movies and training and then you arrive and it's just time to go and if you're there for the middle of the season do that for a couple of months and yeah double dipping as you call it in northern winter it's gonna be pretty good for your skiing (laughs) yeah man and you know as we're talking i just i think too like the All Blacks rose to the top of the, of the rugby world, and I can't, I don't want to go over the stats in rugby to see how many countries and people practice rugby around the world versus New Zealand. So maybe there's just something about it when Kiwis put their mind to a certain sport. It, watch out. Yeah, it could be. I'm not 100% <laughs> sure, but um, I think we've kind of got this culture of just giving it a go. Like if you're not sure if you can do it, just give it a try and see how it works out. So maybe yeah. that's part of it as well. Well, out of the Kiwis, we saw Jess win, uh, Jess Hodder win at Kicking Horse. We've seen Craig win multiple times on the World Tour. Hank Billis, he wowed everybody, two podiums in his first season. Blake skied unbelievably solid as well. Sam Lee, he's podiumed on the tour before, and he um, was out this year. But, I mean, just watch his run down the Beck to Ross if you want to see what type of a skier Sam Lee is. And we should mention as well, although he's not on the tour at the moment, Sam Smoothie with perhaps one of the most memorable runs in tour history. So the Kiwis aren't just participating. They're pretty much threatening in every event to win. And it's quite possible. I don't know what your take is, but we might see a Kiwi world champion in the next couple of years even. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Also, just want to throw a wee shout out to Janina Kuzma and Charlie Lyons, also having skied for New Zealand on the world tour and taking podiums. Um, just yes. to back up the other star-studded list of casts you just reeled off but yeah as you say um i think craig was actually not sure if he was winning but he would definitely be in the top three overall when he hurt himself last year um you know just coming off that win and in canada and then broke his foot or heel in in austria um and then you know came back and won that event this year wait what a way to show that you're not scared of the face that broke you last season come back to win the <laughs> event you know so, no yeah, like Jess winning a stop as well, and, and Hank and Blake being right up there. Yeah, could absolutely see a, a World Tour champ come out of New Zealand. Similar kind of style to, to Isaac, I think, those guys, and the way that they charge hard. But 
so solid freestyle skills as well. Um, but yeah, once once you're at that level, there's there's a little bit of luck. Uh, you know, anyone could win in the men's ski field in any of the fields actually now. And yeah, it's a little bit down to what comes up on the day. You know, like Sam Smoothie was winning the tour, like the whole tour that year. And then I think he like crashed in the last stop and just got beaten. So yeah, who knows? But it's close. You know, you bring up an interesting point there about the, about who has freestyle and and what guys are, are doing in the terms of tricks right now. And I think about Smoothie's run from that year. And that's a really good notable example of a big mountain line absolutely deserved to win without a doubt it was a first place run by a mile thrilling didn't have a trick in it and i i threw this at isaac when i was on with him as well because he his run in andorra gave us a really good example of all kinds of wacky tricks that we hadn't seen on the world tour before and i'll ask you do you think there is a changing of the guard in terms of the it's going to now take a trick to win or do you think it's just related to the venues that are currently being used on the world tour? Well, I think it's both. And I think that's what Isaac said as well. So hopefully it's still going to be a good answer. I give it a bit more depth, but yeah, smoothies run there, for example, incredible, like skied a zone that no one thought could be skied. No one even really knew why it was in the venue and then slayed it, even though he almost crashed at the bottom. We're all stoked to see him put a second ski back on the ground. Um, yeah. Solid big mountain run that absolutely deserved to win. Um, but it's not just a changing of the guard in terms of people being able to trick cliffs that people only use about Australia because they've got such solid backgrounds in freeride and freestyle now. It's also that it's a changing of the venues, and it's not an intentional thing, I don't think. It's the fact that if you go somewhere new, it's so hard to have a good venue again. Like Beck de Ross, it's incredible, and everyone knows it, and it's probably the most gnarly, intimidating face you're ever going to have a competition on. And it's been like that for what, 25 years now. So mm -hmm. there's so much old footage of people doing things in different snow conditions and other riders on the tour having already skied it and talking to other people. There's so much depth of knowledge about that. And not only the riders, the organizers, the safety team, you know, all the things that can go into it have been kind of built up. They know how to do the processes. They know when it's going to be dangerous with what storms from what, one direction, et cetera, et cetera. But when you go somewhere new and you want to step onto a big gnarly venue, it's intimidating for the organizers and the safety team just as much as for the riders. So as soon as you're in a new place, you know, Japan, uh, Canada, you know, they're looking for, for venues, alternate venues at most of the places just to have some backup options or maybe change it from year to year. And then suddenly it's harder to step into the big venues. And so it's more achievable. I'm not going to say easier because that would make it sound like it's easy and it's not. It's more achievable to have venues that are smaller and therefore safer and therefore suit freestyle more and therefore freestyle or backcountry freestyle riders win more. So I think it's both. And I feel like a lot of people have kind of had this backlash that it's like, oh, they're choosing freestyle friendly video um, faces because then you get more video clips of people doing tricks, which is what they want. And I don't think that's true. I think it's just that whole kind of more complicated thing that I just tried to explain that it's too short to put in a, quick response to a hater yeah i could i could totally agree with that and i would even go as far as saying that the longer an athlete stays on the tour as well you got guys like drew tabke and rinda barkred who've been on the tour for a decade well they're getting way more time on these faces and anybody that gets a year or two on the tour is also going to get more comfortable with the face and if the faces stay the same then the, the, uh, maybe they straight aired it the year before and it's just this year they're going to be able to throw a trick off it. It's just a matter of they've been there, they've seen it, and now they're getting they they've had a look at it once, and that that that's all you needed, I guess. 
Yeah, exactly. Totally agree with that. And it's also super interesting to see that they still often choose different lines. And I've got a lot of respect for that because they don't have to. I think a lot of the time it's for their own satisfaction and for respect from the other writers and, and appreciative uh, spectators to see that they're not just getting the same lines that they've picked and got better at and having practice runs by doing it year after mm-hmm. year. So that's that's very cool. Big ups to, to all the athletes to do that. Oh, for sure. I'd love to get Nico on to analyze the full factors that go into exactly what the the resort partnership side of of choosing the venues and everything that go along with the broadcasts and stuff like that to talk specifics because I know not to throw anybody under the bus but I know that even some of the athletes in the past have expressed complaints openly uh, and and some riders have even left the tour f- citing that reason about their distaste with the venues what do you you know you're a guy who's been around the qualifier tour you've been around the free ride world tour you competed on both and you've seen pretty much all the faces that are out there that have been competed on, maybe even others. What do you think that, what would, what would you do if you had a magic wand? Was there some faces that you would add to the tour take away? Is there any, like I think of the Nenda face in particular or the Obergurgle world qualifier face. These are some, some fantastic faces that are four star faces, the Kirkwood, the Cirque and Kirkwood. Uh, Is there any face that you were always thinking to yourself, man, I'd love to see that become a world tour stop. Yeah, I mean, there's so many sick faces out there, aren't? and yeah. totally agree with you that yeah, Nanda, Obergurgel, uh, Montafon as well. Like from the top, if you started like not where they start from the shoulder, but from the top of Montafon, that would be yes. you know, getting getting towards Beck kind of territory. Yeah, um, I don't know the North American venues as well. Uh, I've competed a little bit over there, but not extensively. I mean, Mac Daddy, Mac Daddy is is the classic, isn't it? Bring that back to. To the North American free ride. Now, did you did, did you did you compete in in, in Revelstoke in your time? Yeah, well, I was I was on the tour when it was in Revelstoke, but it was like one of the first years that it was kind of combined, and so they had like a qualifier day in uh, North Bowl, and then finals was on on Mac Daddy, but then I crashed in the qualifying day, unfortunately, and so I didn't get to ski Mac Daddy in the finals. Ah, uh, yeah, just, just had to watch, it. but yeah, <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's some really amazing faces out there, but it's. It's not just a question of picking these faces, as I think that people sometimes think. There's so much that goes on behind it, you know, like uh, safety primarily, also like talking with the resorts and having resorts back it and be interested enough in free ride to throw enough resources at it to make it happen. You know, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. So, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of drool material out there and, and hopefully you can get onto some of those bigger faces in the near future. I know that the World Tour wants to do it, so takes a lot to bring it together and fingers crossed they can make it happen. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, just going to Alaska shows that they want to do it, right? I mean, that that you can't, there's so many boxes that aren't checked in terms of being able to have crowds there and, and logistics of doing live broadcasts and all those things could that could cause massive headaches. But at the end of the day, they went all the way up to Haynes and they put on an event because that's, everybody wanted to see it, right? They wanted to see the, those faces up in Alaska being ridden. Yeah, and the... The comps came out of it were amazing too. So yeah, really, really stoked they did that, and hopefully we can do it again in the future. But like you say, lots of boxes need to be ticked for it to all come back together. You you talked about Revelstoke. What what was your face when you look back at some of your qualifier events, your World Tour events? Is there is there a face that was the, if 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 you had one more shot, let's say Neil, this winter you're you're back, you're competing again. What, what would be your choice? What suited your style or what face did you really enjoy? Um, I think the one they had in Chamonix, actually, a few years ago. It was, right. That really suited me. Um, it was like 
not super long, but like continuous and steep and with some big ears that were uh, kind of blind, but like not like difficult to find. It was kind of like if you come down, get to this nose and seen that nose and you can't go wrong. Uh, so intimidating from the top, but like not a big chance of getting lost once you're in there and steep landings. Yeah, like I think it was like east facing and early in the season. So good snow, but like still a little bit of sun to kind of pack down the, the under layers of, of the snow. So it's like soft on top and firmer as you go down reasonably consistently. Yeah, so I got a, a top 10 there, I think, when I competed there and would have liked to go back and send it a bit harder. I wasn't feeling super good that day. I can't remember a little injury or sickness or something but yeah the sham faces think, were awesome i think i read somewhere maybe it was um on on your fisher ski bio or, or i can't remember exactly where it was but you said something like you never put down a run on the world tour that you were truly happy with is, was that something that you said yeah 100 percent um which is really unfortunate i think that um i had a little bit of luck on the on the fwq on the qualifiers and right. I definitely didn't have any luck on the world tour <laughs> to always get a little bit injured at the start of the season or have something else like that going on and uh, kind of let it get to me a little bit mentally. And then like sometimes at one time I skied the same face as I had come second on in a four star in Norway in the world tour and skied way worse on the world tour skiing the same face than I had when I skied it as a qualifier. So I think it's like the mental game get to me after not doing well in the first couple of events each year of the three years that I was on it. And um, yeah, just like a little injury or niggle at the start of the season, put you off for an event or two. And then if you let it get into your head, it's kind of game over a little bit. Did you have, were they small injuries or did you ever have a major injury that in between competing? Like, did you ever take a full season off? Nah, um, I mean, I probably should have some of the times. And now I see some of the athletes on the tour that like shouldn't be skiing, but want to be on the tour and they've put the work into qualify. So they're going to go and do it anyway. Um, you know, like Consti Otner, for example, like he had such a bad run with injuries, man. He was so unlucky and mm -hmm. it was like, whatever, I'm just going to go ski the tour. Um, I'm good enough, but he wasn't at his best, you know? And then like not many people know that he wasn't skiing at his best. And then it's worse for him to want to try and explain, oh yeah, that's not skiing at my best, but I want to be on the tour. And yeah, so it was kind of the same for me at, at least two of the three times that I was on the tour, I got, got a back injury that I shouldn't have even really been skiing. I think I did like two runs before a comp in a week once because I was, yeah, like really bad black eye, like need myself in the face so hard. I literally couldn't see it of one eye. And yeah, so yeah, it's like, it's such a tough call whether to compete or not in that injury. It's funny that you bring that up because I, I was in Hakuba in January and we were tree skiing one day uh, at Cortina and I ran into Consti and I had that exact conversation with him. I think we went along the lines of, how are you feeling, man? Are you ready to go? You know, you guys are on next week kind of thing. And he was like, uh, um, well, not really, but I'm going to do it anyway. And, and I, I kind of left that conversation thinking to myself that it really speaks to the difficulty of the qualifier series that when you get there, this is your shot. And the, the, the chance of losing your shot going back to the qualifiers and having to requalify, it's been done, but it's difficult. Yeah, man, for sure. I mean, I have done it actually. Like at first year on the tour, I didn't requalify. Uh, went back to the qualifiers and requalified and came back and was just like, not doing that again. You know, like yeah. I think that sometimes it almost feels like it's harder to get on the tour than stay on the tour. So many people that are so hungry and just ready to absolutely huck themselves. And if you've got like 10, 20 people in each comp that are in that mindset, then, you know, like half of them are going to land and then the podium's like at an incredibly high level. 
whereas people on a tour are a little bit more like mature and like able to pick a line that will do well but not like crash or win kind of thing mm -hmm. so yeah uh like you say when people have made the tour even if they have a niggly injury they often go for it and and try and see in things that might not even be a good idea if they're fully healthy just to just to prove themselves you know like happened in um in Canada, you know, we saw people flipping Vadek Gorek's cliff. Uh, yeah, yeah. And Tal Krabik was the only one to land it, and then he crashed just afterwards. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Vadek and Konsi both had effectively season-ending injuries right there. So, yeah, yeah. pushing it pretty did, hard. Did, did Turtle not land that one? Or did he hit it from a different angle, I think? He hit it from a different angle, which was really smart, but also super blind and unbelievably intimidating. I actually went and skied the face after the competition, yeah. And even standing on the takeoff with the luxury of skiing, looking at it from a distance, knowing someone had flipped it, skiing up to it, standing on the takeoff and looking at the landing from there, I was like, you are a psycho. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, skiing well, we, into that, man, you feel like you're skiing to a sharp wall. Right, yeah. Well, Ozone's actually one of our four-star faces. So I got to compete on Ozone, and, and we've had it as part of our Wrangle the Shoot competition that we do for the four-star. So we all get a pretty good look at it. So... It's pretty neat to see the broadcast and to be able to see where people are going. And it, it just changes so much with the snow conditions Ozone does. Like from year to year, depending on how much snow coverage is there, I, I, I was watching some of the women just grease through there. And I was like, man, they are just, just sailing through parts that I had trouble with. And I would go back to my footage from the, from the four-star event, and it just looked entirely different. You know, I guess I, such is the case in most free ride comps, right? From year to year, it just changes so much. Yeah, uh, the girls absolutely crushed it in Canada this year, man. It was that was like a new level of freeride skiing was achieved in women's freeride that day for me. It was it was absolutely amazing to watch, and I think there's also um, something that not to do with women, but unfortunate about competitions in general is that people watching them can't really appreciate how difficult what the athletes are doing until they've gone there, looked at it, stood on it, tried it, whatever. And then yeah. so they just compare the athletes against the other athletes. And just because some of the other athletes are doing something amazing, they think that some of the athletes that aren't doing as well aren't super good. But they're all incredible. They're all unbelievably good at what they're doing. It's just compared to each other, you've got to pick a best, right? It's like, you know, you watch the NBA and everyone looks normal because they are all massively tall and they say, no, it's a normal person. And you're, oh, okay, yeah, you're giants. <laughs> yeah, that that's an interesting point. It kind of... It brings me to Tanner Hall because Tanner Hall is a guy that jumped onto the tour. He had no free ski, uh, big mountain competition experience. How, how do you assess his, his performance on the tour and how could you explain it to the people that don't realize, how, you know, he stepped into the free ride world tour, not a two-star world qualifier, not a three-star, four-star. He's on the world tour with the best free ride athletes in the world that have worked their way there. How do you assess his performance? Good question. Wow. Tough one. Uh, Tanner, obviously legend of the sport. Uh, so many people on the world tour probably grew up watching him, were inspired by him. Change the sport was part of the first wave of, of the revolution that made free skiing what it is right now. Uh, primarily kind of like park and, and urban and backcountry freestyle background and is still producing unbelievable footage in that area at this age. It's, it's mind bending for me. Uh, the high consequence urban stuff that he is doing is just just so gnarly. And, yeah. you know, it's like guys half his age, literally half his age, 
would like not even step to the things that he's doing. So to be doing that and also competing on the free ride world tour, it's, it's crazy. And he's, he's skiing on like pretty soft, like freestyle backcountry freestyle skis that, um, you know, suit his style and, and being able to do tricks and butters, but aren't always the best for the snow conditions that, that the guys might have to compete in. Uh, and then, so he's taken to this new sport of competitive free riding. So let's say it's different to, to classic free riding where, you know, you, you wait it out and pick your days and pick your windows and scope your line and, and then go and send it. And obviously has banger film parts doing that as well. Uh, but being put in the zone where he's competing against people that have come through the qualifiers, especially North American qualifiers, where you're forced to ski on average to poor snow uh, in this competition situation and not having the resources he's he wants or is used to uh, doesn't make him look like this outstanding giant that he is in comparison to the other riders that are used to this style of riding and competition faces and competition skis and, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm stoked that he's been on the tour for two years now and qualified to be back on it for a third. Um, but if, if you watched it as a complete outsider with no knowledge of the history of the sport, then you wouldn't kind of pick him as this like legend that's, that shaped the whole thing. No, but that I've, to me that makes him that makes me respect him even more because he probably knows that too. He knows what people are. First of all, Travis Rice didn't really do him any favors in in his performances on the Free Ride World Tour because we got out of Travis Rice what we kind of expected. What, what people wanted to see from this A list marquee name, Travis Rice gave these ninety five score runs each time he appeared on the World Tour as a wild card. Tanner took a full season wild card. And the chances of having those performances throughout a full season when you don't competition experience in free ride are pretty slim. And he knew that people were probably going to be watching him as the marquee name, thinking of his career and trying to compare him to you know, what his video parts are and what his accomplishments. He didn't give a shit. He sent it anyway. And I think that's highly commendable. You know, and I think he probably brings a lot of eyes to the tour while he's doing it. And it's probably at the end of the day, he probably doesn't give a shit what people think either. He probably is doing it for himself, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think so too. And I've got a lot of time for that. I got a lot of respect for the guy, he, the way he's kept reinventing himself as a, as a skier over the last 15, 20 years. It's, it's really a success story in my eyes. And like you say, a lot of people that have had that kind of star studded career that he's had to, to take a step back would be no surprise now. And the fact that he keeps wanting to send yeah. it for him himself and not care what other people think, man, that's the coolest thing you can do. In my opinion. I want, I want to talk to you a little bit about the haters because the, you know, Tanner may get his fair share of haters, which again, is, uh, in my opinion, a lot of the time it's misinformed broadcasting comes with a lot of haters as well. And you have a pretty, your broadcasting style is very easy to not hate. I, I really am a big fan of your broadcasting style. And I, I just know that it's such a personal taste for people, the voice broadcasting and the things that get said over the air. People get very particular about it. Do you pay attention to that? What people are, how people are reviewing Neil's broadcast performance? Does that worry you at all? Or you just go, man, I just got to call it the way I see it and not worry about that. That's also another good question, Nick. I can tell you put a bit of effort into to preparing this <laughs> stuff. Uh, yeah, so as an announcer um, commentating the World Tour for third year now, uh, I didn't really go into it with the history of that. I hadn't done like a lot of it before. I'd done some live stuff as in, you know, like on the mountain 
to a to a public audience there, but not so much like online broadcast the world. And uh, yeah, there was a little bit of hate at first. You know, you learn as you go. So at first, you're not going to be as good as you're you're going to be once you had a bit of practice. And I think one of my comments on Travis Rice's runs got a bit ridiculed around the world. And at first, I took that a little bit like, oh, guys, nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized that it's the internet, man. It's like this this faceless arena of people that can say whatever they want without fear of repercussion. Just had to be like, well, man, this could be like some like teenage kid that's just sitting at home on his computer writing hate before he like logs into play halo and and yell get wrecked noobs at all the other kids <laughs> on the line so yeah had to develop a bit of a thicker skin and, and not worry about it too much but uh the longer you've been in the game the more you just decide to back yourself and and not worry about it but it's hard to completely turn a blind eye you know yeah but i i think it's one of those things as well as yes you're right it certainly probably is a lot of young and uninformed people but there's also seems to be a demographic that are just opposed to change in general. So when a new broadcaster comes in, and I'm thinking of when Lorraine got her start in Hakuba, and I, I really enjoyed her broadcasting, and I know that she she got a little bit of a backlash reading some of the comments and things like that. I think I just think that some people they don't they don't want it change. They want it the way they know it, and no matter what the change is going to be, whether it's positive or negative, whether it's a new voice that works or a new voice that doesn't work, they're going to find ways to to pick it apart and voice their displeasure. Yeah, well, like you say, man, it was it was the first time for her, and people are kind of riled up already because of the whole delayed broadcast situation, where yeah. they recorded it and they edited it together because it was too difficult to do on site, and they had a lot of problems with the broadcast here before in Japan and Canada, and so they had this new format which people hadn't realized was going to be the case, and then so people are kind of already annoyed at the world tour because of that, and then like you said, new announcer didn't want change in the and booth as well as changing the format. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, it's the first time you've ever done it and feeling the pressure and then people are hating online. It's just, yeah, not a great recipe for, for I, success out of the box. I, I, yeah, I mean, I would go back to the same point. I think, again, it's changed, right? Like that, that the broadcast from Hakuba, you were able to get GoPro shots in in, in the edited version, the, the, the replay version that they put out, if you want to call it that. And you were able to cut out that big, long ski out at, at Hapaone that not a lot of people realize there was a a big long ski out through the drainage down there over dams and things like that. And it, it, I don't know. I mean, it, it seemed like a pretty polished and clean. I know some people say, well, I prefer the delays. I prefer waiting for them to pick their skis back up. And I prefer hanging around and, and just having it live. It's more natural. But I think to assert, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just biased because I enjoyed the ways they had put together the kicking horse broadcast and the Hakaba ones. But I think, again, it's changed for people, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something that people didn't really realize was that it was always planned. The first two events were going to be like that because that was the places they've had such problems with and broadcasting in the past because it's like more remote and less access to like proper infrastructure where you can get a solid landline or whatever. And they're always going to have the next three live. So I think right. some people thought that the hate and complaints had changed it back, but it yeah. was always going to be that way. And I think it's going to be that way again next year. So I guess that maybe it's a little bit of a naive approach but hopefully people can just enjoy the fact the first two are shorter and more cut and polished and then enjoy yeah. the fact that the next three are live because you know there's good and bad bits about both and if you can just do that public then we'd appreciate it please <laughs> <laughs> yeah well what works better for you as a broadcaster what what would you rather i mean i i would assume obviously the polished version gives you the the edited version gives you more flexibility as a broadcaster is that true yeah, but I actually prefer live more because with live, it's like you're in the 
booth, you're in the moment, you're on air, it's all going straight to on the line, and then it's done, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. If you've made a mistake, you can correct yourself, you can apologize, you can change it, whatever, but like it, it's done, you don't have to think about it again. And then if you're doing the like the pre-recorded one, and right. you really blow something, you have the option to go back and record it again. But then right. that's more work for everyone in the booth who, like, um, you know, the filmers, the engineers, the editors, the, there's a lot of people behind the whole video situation. Yeah. And so then knowing that in the back of your mind, that if you really blow something, you can change it, but no one really wants to do that extra work. It, I prefer not to have that. It's just like yeah. once and it's done. I get that. Yeah, I could totally see that. The the, the whole, okay, let's let's roll it again, folks. Um yeah, just just get it get it done. We'll do it live, so to speak. Yeah, because it's hard to have the emotion and the retake as well, the real emotion. Yeah, which is something that you've you've been fantastic at. Do you think? I mean, you're probably going to be recognized as the voice of the world tour eventually. Your your voice may become more well known than your skiing. I, I you're obviously a fantastic skier and you're known as a skier, but there's so many clips going around of, of fantastic, amazing tricks or, or airs, Yu Suzaki and kicking horse comes to mind and, and your voice is there with its enthusiasm and all those clips. Do you ever think of that? Like, man, my voice is, is going to be become more well known than anything at this point. Yeah, dude, that's exactly. You summed it up, man. It's like, <laughs> I, I'm a skier. I want to be a skier and want to be known for my skiing, but it suddenly turned into being known for my commentary and, Sometimes I'm actually a little bit self-conscious about being too enthusiastic because I'm so psyched about what the guys and girls are doing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's probably going to be the case that people know me as, as the voice of freeride, but definitely worse things to be known as, you know, like uh, I'm a freerider for myself and talking about how great other people are at it too can only be a good thing, right? Yeah, man, for sure. It's it's uh, not everybody that has that skill. A lot we're we're egocentric people by nature as free riders. It's we're doing a competition where we're being judged on putting down the best run on the mountain. So a lot of us uh, carry quite a little bit of a little bit of ego, and it's great to be able to commend other people and give them props. And you're fantastic at it. But what what do you think is the biggest challenge as a broadcast? Like, there's obviously just calling the right trick and not messing up. Like Isaac threw some tough ones at you in, in Andorra. He had, he had a switch overflip, which is difficult to be able to even figure out what he was doing. And then he threw a screaming semen in there, which I missed at first. I only caught it because you called it on the broadcast in the replay, but it's hard to decipher. So is that one of the bigger challenges is to decipher and relate to the people exactly what's going on or what, what is the, the biggest challenge in broadcasting for you? Yeah, it can be for sure with the tricks, uh, especially snowboarding. Uh, like, I'm not straight on it with frontside and backside spins on snowboarding. You know, I have to, like, analyze and think. And, you know, it's not very difficult, but with skiing, it's very obvious for me, left and right. Like, I can, I'm not yeah. going to miss that. But with snowboarding, the grabs, and, you know, it's different for a regular and a, and a goofy rider. And uh, the tricks, I don't know. I kind of stick with my switch, Misty 5 from Isaac. Uh, I never even heard the word switch over flip until he used it in his post run interview. So I don't think it could have done much better than that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you could imagine, you could imagine if you had to call, you know, park skiing or, or uh half pipe or something like that, how complex those tricks get, right? Like that would oh, be, I could it, never do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, nor could I, man. I mean, we're yeah, lucky man. as we in, in big mountain, Isaac is giving us as big a challenge as we've ever seen before, but maybe as some of these juniors come up, it's going to get trickier and trickier. But I watched some of that park stuff and I'm like, man, I couldn't even begin to call what that trick was. 
Yeah, no, not at all. Especially when they like grab variations and like whether it's switch right, switch left, you have to remember which way they spin. And yeah, I don't know. There's all too much for me. I'm, I'll stick to free ride. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. I, talking about, you know, sticking to free ride, what I watched Snowmads, which is a Fabulench project, and it's beautiful, beautiful project that you were part of. If you were going to give us like a boardroom pitch on that, just explain that series. How would you explain that to, to people? Uh, so Snowmads is like, as you were saying before on the World Tour, um, Fabi was on it and decided that he didn't like the venues enough. So he was going to go and do his own thing, which was a crazy, crazy thing at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like he was on the World Tour after trying really hard to qualify f- for it. And then suddenly he just said, nah, uh, this isn't my thing. These venues aren't my faces. And uh yeah, left the world tour and long story short, uh, rebuilt an old huge fire truck into the ultimate skiing camper and uh, drove it to the Middle East and all sorts of crazy places all over the the Eurasian continent. Um, yeah, and made some film projects about that that he invited me to be a part of, which was awesome. Really stoked about that. And, uh, and where, that did, was, where did you where did you get to go? Uh, so the first year went to Turkey and uh, Georgia mainly. Lots of other countries on the way uh, there and back, but those are the main places that we filmed. Wow, that's uh, awesome! This, yeah, it was a great experience. Check out the movie if you guys haven't seen it. Yeah, I, I, oh, I've been watching. <laughs> I've been watching it. It's fantastic. And how did you? How do you fit that in timing wise? Do you do it before you go on tour? Do you do you wait and film at the end of the freeride world tour season, or do you just throw it, your schedule completely packed throughout the winter, where you're one time you're commentating, then you're on the road filming? Oh well, uh, that was before I was um, before I was commentating. It was the year after I didn't requalify. So I was on tour 2012, 14, 15. And yeah. then uh, in 2016, that was the year that I went, the first Nomads movie was filmed. And we got to go to uh, all those cool places, including Turkey and Georgia with Fabi. Uh, and then the next year, 2017, uh, was the second Nomads movie. And we filmed that in Greece, where they had the biggest winter in like 30 years, I think. Some crazy amount of snow they don't usually get. People don't usually think you can ski in Greece at all. Um, but yeah, had a great film season there as well uh and i think i only commentated one event that year that was the first event that commentated okay. for the tour and then uh 2018 uh the filming was um uh in austria actually so right yeah didn't have to worry about that too much close um, close to home yeah yeah and as, as i did more commentating that was less demanding to get to other places for uh, for the filming, so. Well, while I have you, I just want to get your take on ski media in general. Like, it's becoming increasingly difficult to be original, and like, what do you personally, when you sit down and you you're going to watch something in the fall that's coming out, what gets you fired up? Is it what, what do you look forward to these days? Because it seems with the Instagram world, like a lot of it's being given away, and it's being given away in shorter and shorter form. You know. What do you get fired up about when it comes to the ski media? Yeah, 100%. It has, it's hard to be original now. Like, it feels like everything's been done or getting done. Um, I like things that talk to me. Uh, it doesn't have to be the gnarliest skiing, bit of a story, something that feels genuine, uh, heartfelt, meaningful. You know, it can be just travel pieces or pieces at home. I saw one about um snowboard crew in Switzerland that was like, we reckon we can make a sick movie without any kind of like helicopters or like big lift systems or anything we're just going to like make the coolest stuff that we can just with our own touring power and maybe a little bit of lift access and 
yeah, making stuff like that to to show what's possible instead of just like unachievable dream lines in Alaska. It's kind of like you can right. do this too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For my taste, I'm I'm totally into seeing the travels. I love I love what you guys did with Snowmads, and I love the skier's journey from from Jordan Manley series as well. And it doesn't have the gnarliest skiing in it per se. It doesn't translate to Instagram as well, but some of those pieces are, they resonate with me more than any. Yeah, for sure. I think that's unfortunately the more passionate skiers and viewers that relate to those things. And that's why Instagram is kind of taken over as the, the main media communication form is because people that aren't like deeply interested and passionate about how skiing can be, soulful and meaningful we'll just you know look at the 15 second best trick and then look at whatever else is on instagram um, yeah <laughs> i think you you and i and and hopefully everyone that's listening to this podcast is the kind of people whose instagram feed is basically skiing and skiers and that's what we see so that's why we're so interested in different meaningful content from from the instagram skiers um whereas other people that only briefly follow skiing and especially the small part of skiing that is freeride skiing yeah, they're, they're only interested in, in the best of the best, which isn't the stuff that we find as meaningful because that's new for them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. Well, listen, man, it's been a pleasure. What, so what does the future hold for you? Is it you're back to broadcasting next year? Or are you going to be uh, taking a year off and just filming? Or what, what are the plans for you as an athlete and, and uh, a broadcaster for the coming year? Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully broadcasting again. Um, seems like it'll be a difficult or more difficult thing to do. Uh, hopefully everything's sorted by the end of next year, end of this year, start of next year, but I guess there's no guarantees about that. So we'll have to just wait and see what happens. It might be in a different format, uh, but mm -hmm. hopefully part of it still. Uh, personally, tending towards a bit more ski mountaineering now, I got back to, to New Zealand last October, November, which is kind of like April, May um, for Northern Hemisphere winter thinkers. And I uh, got to climb and ski some of New Zealand's most iconic mountains and, and some routes that haven't really been done very often oh, wow. before with uh, some of my oldest skiing friends that I, I learned to freeride with. So that was pretty damn satisfying. I like to do some more stuff like that, both over there and over here. Beautiful. Yeah. I'd, well, we'll be watching out for that for sure, man. It, uh, it really is a pleasure to follow you. And it's like I said, I enjoy your commentary and I know that everybody is stoked to well, hope that we can get back to business as usual this coming, hopefully by the fall and by the time the first event rolls around in January, we will be back at business as usual. And I really appreciate you coming on today, man. Where can, where should people follow you? Obviously Instagram is, is it at Neil Willman or? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lucky enough to have a weird enough last name that I get all my own email addresses <laughs> and Instagram accounts and everything. Perfect. Right. Well, man, thanks so much for coming on and stay safe during this time. I know you're out adventuring and uh, do it, do it, but just keep, keep uh, healthy and well. And I look forward to seeing you on the mountain next year, man. Thanks very much, Nick. You too. Cheers and good luck for the rest of the podcast, man. I look forward to listening. Well, that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. That is exactly the type of conversation I like to have. That's what I was hoping to get out of Neil. He's an awesome dude, and I highly encourage you to follow him. I want to thank him for being on the show, and I want to thank you guys for listening. And I'll see you again next time right here in the Free Ski Files.